This podcast is sponsored by Equiland, a global fintech firm for the securities finance industry. Welcome back to Asia Securities Finance Monthly. I'm your host, Matt MacArthur. Coming up on this episode, we look into our crystal ball for the trends shaping securities finance in 2024. And when I bring other people from other areas of banking in, they go, oh, my God, you guys are all so nice. Are you implying that we have to be nice? No, but it's, it's, it's a really nice industry to work in. We get out of our podcast studio broom closet to meet with some real agent lenders and brokers out in the wild. But first, this is our final podcast of 2023, a year end wrap up of sorts with a few little surprise Easter eggs at the end. But in the meantime, I'm excited to welcome in not only two old friends, but two iconic matriarchs of securities finance from right here in Hong Kong, Fian Chung, Bank of New York, and Nemranta Mashru, BMP. My job today is not to play crossfire, meaning we have both sides of the street here, an agent lender and a broker, and I'm not here to pit them against each other. Opposite, in fact, I'm here to simply play a more handsome version of Tom Brady. Now, Nemrata, let's dig in. Let's recap 2023. We have certainly had our fair share of Forrest Gump moments. Let's start with, from a macro perspective, with all of the geopolitical news, what type of year has 2023 been for APAC Securities Finance? It has been a very interesting year. One of the biggest changes in the securities lending borrow market is that the composition of the special borrow names changed. The pandemic came to an end. And it had dominated 2021 and 2022 for the kind of sectors that were in demand. We saw that the names in pharma, travel and tourism, and technology came back to operating in a normalcy mode. So the scenery changed quite a bit. Fee, you sit on the agency lending desk at Bank of New York, which supplies brokers like BMP with inventory. Have you seen the same themes that Nimrata has mentioned? Definitely. With all the geopolitical tension, we can see a global raise from technology to energy supply, and it becomes a very crowded trade with lots of investment in that space where investors are looking for exposure on these sectors. And that sets off a large rally and a large sales-off, which we call volatility. So this year, we have seen a consistent theme on security finance globally, which are driven by that. The first theme that I would say is on lithium. Definitely with all the people trying to get an exposure on that sector because of the whole EV market, there is a supply surplus definitely going into 2024 and 2025. Globally, we've seen people having interest in names like Standard Lithium in the States, uh, Lithium Americas, Lithium Argentina. And in APAC, we have seen a lot of interest in Australia in names like Core Lithium, Liantang Resources, and Lake Resources. And then the second theme that we see would definitely be EV, uh, from battery materials to EV sellers, EV truck. Globally, in the US, right, we see names like Nicola, QuantumScape, Lucid, and Fisker having interest. And then in APAC, definitely EcoPro and LNF, who are the battery material suppliers. And then the third one that I have seen, right, is Biofarm Company, which we actually see this interest since COVID time, where especially this year with an increase of interest rate, that would probably add on to the cost of financing on, on these firms, right? So globally, we have seen interest on Novavax, uh, Casava, and then APAC, we have got SK Bioscience in Korea. 
And the last one that I think has been there for a while, but this year is still contribute to a very big portion of the revenue in the securities lending space is the Mimi stock. And the US, right, some of the top 10 names in the market probably would involve AMC, Bed Bath & Beyond, and GameStop. And then in APAC, you can see there is a name called EcoPro, which we've mentioned before, right? So the name actually at some point went up to 1,000% of its valuation. And the market capital actually goes over $35 billion at some point, which is bigger than a bank of New York Mellon. So with all these valuations, investors are looking at whether they can be justified and sustainable, right? So all these actually drive uh, interest in the securities finance space. And this is number one. So this is definitely a year with more active right issues. Singapore, we have SETS SP. And then in Hong Kong, we've got Ling Ritz issuing rights as well. And then for tender offer, we've got Skyworth in Hong Kong and Japan Benefit in Japan, right? So that also contribute to the activities around the securities finance area. And I think it will continue in 2024 as well, because right now the interest rate is high and it's going to maintain there around 4 to 5% mark, right? And it's going to be probably be cheaper for some companies to finance their debt using equity. So uh, I think that theme of having corporate events, rights issue, tender offer is going to last until the interest rate comes down. Let me dig a bit deeper. It's expected that larger markets like Hong Kong and Japan would be affected by things that you've already mentioned, Middle East, rising interest rates, geopolitical tensions. But smaller markets like Korea and Taiwan, have they been affected similarly? I know you mentioned Echo Pro, but any thoughts on maybe more macro of Korea and Taiwan? Korea has been short selling since the 5th of November to improve short selling rules and system. But in general, on a macro level, Korea and Taiwan, they are very high tech and biofarm driven market. So definitely high interest rate is going to impact consumer demand. And the big word for this market is the capex, right? Which is how much investment the company is going to reinvest into their company and on the fabs and the waivers. So going back to the geopolitical pressure between the states and China, where there is a ban on China on certain parts of semiconductor supply chain. And as a result of that, right, China trying to be self-sufficient in chip and semiconductor. So that actually lead to the rise of some of the companies uh, like SMIC and Huahun, and they are growing. And that space, right, it becomes so competitive that some fabs are actually facing strong pressures on the demand issue. It doesn't impact all foundry though, like TSMC, for example, they produce majority of the very advanced three nanometers chips, right? Like the chips that you use in your phone and my phone. And they definitely don't get impacted as much because they are kind of the sole player in that space. But the same sector let's say the United Microchip, where the majority of the chips is on 20 to 28 nanometers or higher, that space is a very competitive one. And it's fascinating to see how that shows up on the security finance screen, where UMC, United Microchip, is our top borrowers for Taiwan in 2023. And the name alone right, actually brought in 7 mil to the market. Now, interest rates are always a hot topic. Even my mom asks me about rising rates. How do they affect prime brokers in general? And does it play a role in APAC securities finance? (laughs) 
Interest rates has been on everybody's mind every morning. Every time the U.S. Fed raises rates to combat inflation, we all come in 15 minutes earlier in the morning. Let's look at it in simple words, what happens in every area. So people start holding on to cash and keep more savings because it becomes dearer and they earn more in their deposits. In the equity markets, when you look at leveraged companies, they are suffering from high cost of borrowing. So they have to restructure their expensive debts by raising cash through equity. So on the broker side, like you asked me, what we saw was a lot more deals in APAC. In Japan, in Hong Kong, we saw companies were issuing more rights offers placement offers, tender offers, in order to have people subscribing to the shares of the company instead of borrowing from creditors. Another area that we see a difference is that, that funds begin to feel the pressure to outperform interest rates. Why would somebody put money in equities if they're getting a substantial return from putting it in cash deposits? So sometimes that leads to volatility. But what we observed was that it has encouraged all funds to come together to execute well-managed and hedged investment strategies. The key area that we saw the difference as a result of higher interest rates was property markets, in Hong Kong especially. Now, this goes both ways. Individual house buyers and development companies for real estate start sweating at the higher cost of mortgage. And mostly this leads to stress sales. Sometimes the sentiment is that prices are higher than they need to be or that there is an oversupply. So one such prominent name during 2023 has been Country Garden, 2007 HK. The company was in the hot seat for upcoming coupons, and it was expected to default this year. So just to give a perspective, the share price at the start of the year was three Hong Kong dollars, and by end of August, it had dropped to 75 cents. You and I both know that at a certain point, the short squeeze was so bad that the borrow rates were as high as 70% in the last quarter of the year. So these were some of the highlights we observed from the higher interest rates. We do know that companies are continuing to make this effort because even towards the end of the year, this is a concern. One more area that banks have been working hard because it has been challenging is collateral management. So we see that funding, risk management, collateral refinancing is on the forefront to ensure that cash is employed smartly in every shop. Fee, from an agent lender's perspective, what have been some of the biggest hurdles in 2023? So on a market level, regulations and short sale ban definitely reduced the liquidity in the market and SPO activity. I mean, it increased price volatility. It makes pricing less efficient. It discouraged investment. So, but this year we've seen quite a bit. So China tightened their rules in October where a hedge fund wishing to short sell a stock must hold 100% of the value of the transaction in their account, while other investors need to have at least 80%. And just now I've mentioned Korea short sell ban, right? But what we actually observed there, the investors actually diverted to the ADR and a single stock future. So, I think the market has tried to find its way to reflect its pricing. So one observation that I have, right, is market is actually up 5 to 6% for Korea and Taiwan since the short sale ban. 
and particularly in quarter four, right, Taiwan is up six and a half percent, where Kospi is up two percent. But Taiwan got no ban, right? So is there a negative correlation between the ban and the stock movement, right? It doesn't look like so. So I think my conclusion will be like it's better to strengthen oversight and increase transparency and disclosure around short positions instead of really removing necessary market mechanism for price discovery and efficiency. So from an agent lender's perspective, one of the biggest hurdles that we have this year is how we operate and conduct our business differently, especially when we are facing CCAR issue. So CCAR is a comprehensive capital analysis review, right? So it's uh, basically a business have to maintain sufficient capital in the balance sheet versus a potential downturn, right? So I think these days, right, it's really not about the quantity of the trade. A lot of the time, I believe agency lenders have to put off inefficient trades in order to put on trades that deploy capital most efficiently. So the integration of different business lines like fixed income and equity has never been that important as you need to move around different asset class to capitalize the opportunity. That is not something that all banks or institutions can do these days. And some of them can be quite silo or segregated in their business line. So if I have to use one word to summarize the hurdle this year, it would be a limit, L-I-M-I-T limit. Now, our industry has certainly gone from Park Avenue to the park bench in Korea since the code red was ordered to stop short selling. Now, from a revenue perspective, has activity just migrated into other APAC markets, perhaps Taiwan and Thailand? Oh, I, I don't think so. We don't see a revenue uptick in Taiwan and Thailand after the ban. I mean, Taiwan utilization actually drops in November for 26 basis point month on month. The average fee stays around 2.7. So Thailand utilization is also around 5% in November with average fee from 2.29 to 2.09. So all in all, the band doesn't really move short interest to the other emerging markets. But talking about revenue number, right, that's one observation I think is quite interesting. This year, the MSCI overall index is up 15% this year. Nikkei is up 27%. But if you looked at the revenue that brought in from a securities finance perspective, Japan is number one this year in APEC, which brought in about 350 mil, which is 28% up. And then Hong Kong, 8% up for 283 mil. So if you looked at how Nikkei performing and then versus how much revenue and how much activity is in the securities finance space, right? It's very obvious that an increase in borrowing activity doesn't mean underperforming index. So that's my observation on that. Now, Nimrata, have there been any specific sectors that have seen increased demand in 2023? And is there any likely carryover on those sectors? Yes. So we noticed that through that phase of change of post-pandemic, electronic vehicles, property names, lithium companies, mining companies came into the forefront. These are more directional. There is a view on the long-term demand of like microchips, on rechargeable batteries, on the supply source. There's also an inclination towards clean energy. So these are sectors that continue to play an important role in our books. And we expect that to carry forward towards next year. Financial stocks, names that are in the top 10 of the indexes, obviously are meant for liquidity. So borrow activity is still there. We uh, continue to see prints in these names. But if we are looking at the warm 
or the more focused areas as to where we are going to see more changes, more demand, then these are the areas that we are going to be focusing on. Now, this is a subjective question, so even I can't get it wrong. But in your opinion, is growth normally driven by volume, fees, or both? Wow, that's an 80-20 question. (laughs) Consistency is actually something that plays a more important role. Having short-term trades that spike up the balance, that have a high fee, do not take you towards the end of the year in a green line. So I would say that quantitative strategies that provide a regular flow of liquidity, of volumes and trading activity is what actually continues to keep momentum and continues to pay the bills. Outside of quant strategies, through the year, we see that there is a requirement for refinancing and rebalancing portfolios. Clients are actively managing their books to make sure that they are marked to market for any exposure, any hedging gaps. So I would like to round this up by saying that high fees are favored. Event names are always welcome. Uh, It's nice to get a market share in all the deal names. But having a consistent amount of balance where you have long short books on your uh, pad is very important for growth. Now, Fee, let's flip it back to you. What's on the top of your mind when someone says 2024? What do you see as growth opportunities, meaning which markets could be the strongest next year? 2024 is probably one of the most important years of transformation on how we conduct business, how we drive, how we learn, how we bank, how we spend, how we communicate, right? And how we mine lithium, for example. So as we sell through the changing era, right? So those markets or company who can excel would do well and there would be bloodbath on those who cannot, right? And I would say the Bloodbath will be majority of them, which definitely will be reflected in the securities finance world as investors look beyond reasonable valuation. So on in terms of SS class, right, I think treasuries will still be investors' favorite given its yields. In equity space, right, Korea Taiwan has been performing quite well this year because they are like more tech prone. But then we have to watch out on the valuation in 2024. But all in all, I would say my favorite market in 2024 is Japan. I personally like Japan a lot, even though a lot of the positive news has been pricing for this year. If you looked at the topics, right, it has went up so much. And I think there are a couple of things which support that and which will actually roll into 2024 as well. And the first one is uh, they have a reform, right? TSE, um, Tokyo Stock Exchange has a reform. And then this year in March, they actually sent a special request to all the listed company to push the company with a price to book ratio below one to implement specific measures to raise their stock price level. And to do that, right, I think in their, even in the TSE request letter, what they regard as effective means, right, to raise the PBR ratio is to increase the dividend and share repurchase. And that's, that's definitely going to drive stock price and it will be a positive reinforcement for the market for sure. At the same time, right, when they try to deploy the large cash reserve that sits on the Japanese company's balance sheet, there might be more M&A activities going on next year as well in Japan. And in that space, right, it will also be leading to a lot of activities on the securities finance area, which to us would be a benefit. 
And then uh, the second thing for Japan, right, is they have a NISA revamp. Uh, the NISA is the Nippon Investment Saving Account, where these days they have always got the NISA program. But I think what they have changed this year, which will take effect in January 2024, is the fact that they now, instead of having a time limit on the tax extension on those accounts, they now have an indefinite use of tax extension on that. And they also increase the ceiling on investment, uh, which are eligible for, for putting it into that account for the tax relief. So some of the popular stocks in Nisa's, right, like they are the high yielders in Japan, where like names like Japan Tobacco, which gives you a yearly yield of 6%, uh, Takeda 4%, MUFG 4%, Toyota 3%, right? These names, right, is a lot higher than the TSE prime market average yield, which is about 2.3%. So the more we see the activities around these high yielders' names, right, it also means they are going to be driving activities on the securities finance space as brokers will naturally belong on these positions as more investors are trying to get the exposure on that front. So I think these things right, will support my stance on I think Japan is going to continue to outperform in 2024 and that would definitely be one of our top markets in security finance space. Imrana, what are you watching in 2024? So Matt, 2024 is going to be a very interesting year. We have major elections coming up in two highly populated countries, the U.S. and India. There is hope that the U.S. interest rates could come down in the second half of the year, which will fuel the equity markets. There's also a lot of buzz about the Bank of Japan possibly exiting the negative interest rate environment, which could turn the equity markets in Japan around. Only time will tell that. Last but not the least, China equities will continue to be a focus. The higher level of unemployment there, the oversupply of real estate, the continuing deflation environment, all of these are too attractive for the entire world to ignore. So China equities is continuing to play a very key demand role in the equity markets. And towards the end, I would like to refer back to our last podcast. So in November, you interviewed for the Philippines Stock Exchange and continuing developments in the securities lending markets for a country like Philippines is encouraging more participation. So exciting times to come ahead. Now I have one last question. And I have to warn you, there is a little bit of a wind up here. And God knows I love a story. In the mid 90s, Prince was one of the biggest recording artists on the planet. And he was about to perform Purple Rain at halftime during the Super Bowl. And as luck would have it, 30 seconds before he goes on stage, live in front of 350 million people, it starts to rain. The TV producers are scrambling and they turn to him and they say, Prince, Prince, we have 20 seconds to air. It's raining outside. Do you want us to go to an extended TV commercial break? Prince looks at the TV producers and says, can you make it rain harder? I mean, what a legend, right? So my question is this. In 2024, we will no doubt be thrown curveballs. What do you see or anticipate as the risks for next year? Definitely on a global level, I think the market is looking on how the recession might play out. I mean, so far in 2023, the recession hasn't been here. And people are talking about a delayed recession, which we will definitely have to see and 
be very cautious in 2024. And if that recession is going to happen, then all these high growth stocks with negative profitability in the market, especially in all these EM markets, right, will probably have a high risk as investors trying to reduce their exposure on them, right? So that is on a global level. And then on a regional level, definitely China developers' issue is still there. It really depends on how Chinese economy stabilized in 2024. But there's still a risk there where if there's any issue with the Chinese developer with their debt issue, then it's not going to be pretty next year. So, But saying that, other than that sector, on a general level for APEC equity for Hong Kong, China, is still having a very attractive valuation for 2024's investment. Thank you, Namrata and Fian. One huge change coming down the pipeline in 2024 is the U.S. shift to T1 settlement. To break that down and what exactly that means for the global securities finance industry, we're joined by Dave Charlton from Equilend. Hi, Matt. Thanks for the intro. Good to be here. I have to warn you, Emma was on our last podcast and she is a hard act to follow. So let's see if we can one-up her. I'll try. Now, just for context for the audience, while you are new to the client role and to Equilend, You've been in Asia for, what, 15 years, and you've spent decades at Morgan Stanley. So you know your way around the securities finance landscape, correct? Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, five years in Japan, 10 years here in Hong Kong now, and you have three decades at Morgan Stanley on the, uh, on the upside. Okay, now here's the hard part. Educate me. Settlement cycles in the U.S. and Canada will move to T1 in May of 2024. Any type of market change always brings challenges galore. What's the impact of moving to T1 for securities finance? Yeah, as you say, the US and Canada and also Mexico moved to T1 in May 2024. And it's likely markets in Europe will follow suit, some as early as 25. Um, I know the UK are already talking about 2026. And then no doubt Asia will follow suit. And then really, for, you know, from an impacted markets, we're going to see an, a demand for you know, increased speed at every touch point in the trade lifecycle. You know, some of the challenges that we have if you think about in our world, you know, hedge funds of beneficial owner sales are often sent to PBs or agent lenders late. So already on T plus one, which becomes settlement date and squeezes the settlement window, those PBs and agent lenders will have limited time to borrow or recall securities. Although algorithms can already identify needs real time, fast collateralization, pre-matching and settlement become paramount. And if we're thinking about mobilizing collateral, lenders will not release instructions to the market until they are collateralized. So borrowers will have even less time to position the collateral needed to cover borrows. And then finally, with regards to settlements, PBs and agent lenders need to reduce latency at all stages of the settlement process. So a lot of challenges, which I'm not too sure how much thought has gone into how to address some of these issues, but it's clear that we're going to require yeah, automation at many stages of the, uh, the trade lifecycle. Now, how does our industry as a whole prepare, and more importantly for you and I here in Hong Kong, how does that, the US, Canada, Mexico, moving to T1 affect APAC? Well, it's interesting. So the move to T1, which is initially impacting North America, there's going to be automation required. And I think here in Asia, although we don't have any markets with T1 settlement at the moment, we do have very stringent penalties for fails, ranging from monetary through to market suspensions. So Asia can leverage any automation introduced to solve the T plus one. So I think that's really where we're going to benefit from in APAC. 
So Dave, just as a recap, are there any things that we should take away as things maybe we can work on or knowledge points that we can pass along to clients? Yes, I, th- I think we, we really need to think about how we eliminate manual processes with automation. So automating lifecycle processes helps reduce latency and increase accuracy. If you reduce the manual work, you have more time to manage exceptions, and then increased automation results in fewer exceptions to manage. So from the outset, trading on an automated platform enables you to automatically execute same-day borrows for shorts coverage. And when we look at settlement rates, automated trading leads to about 95 plus percent settlement rate. Manually booked trades, that figure falls to 30, 35%. So it's clear automation right through from trading or through the settlement process is the way clients are going to need to address the challenges of T plus one. Now, more automation means less Matt MacArthur. So I'm not sure I'm totally on board with this, Dave, but <laughs> but I understand what you're saying. And I do appreciate your time. As always, Equaland is my Rosetta Stone for anything settlement related. And of course, happy holidays. Thanks for that. Happy holidays to you too. This podcast wouldn't exist without our dedicated listeners. So we thought it was about time we got out of the studio to get some real life, real time feedback. And where better than our winter networking social event? We are live here at Ula Petit in Wanshai with a recap of 2023 and looking forward to 2024. We are here with Serge Mikalev, Bank of New York Securities Lending Agent, Agency Lending. What are your ideas for the upcoming podcasts? Any recommendations, suggestions, topics? No, look, I think it's fantastic that uh, people get involved and you are spreading the, the news around about PASLA and about the industry all the way through, but giving it a light-hearted feel as well. A lot, a lot of the times, people sort of get bored of hearing the same things over and over again. You want to get people interested in, in being part of the industry, being part of PASLA. And I think that's a fantastic thing that you do. So we are always looking for fresh insights here at Asia Securities Finance Monthly. And we have with us... Karen King, welcome back. Thank you very S&P much. Market. Thank you. You've been away for a year. A year and two months. A year and two months, and it is a pleasure to have you back where you belong. Very excited to be back in Hong Kong. Now, tell us, I know you are an avid listener of our podcast. Of course. Any recommendations for future topics? Very good question. I think some of the things that I've been reading out a lot recently, actually, in the press is the basis trade in the repo markets. And I think there's a lot more really interesting things going on, really, in the repo markets than I think traditionally there is. Normally, repos, you know, quite quite stable, you know, not too interesting. Something blows up every now and then. But it's obviously hugely integrated with everything that's going on, you know, within, obviously, you know, government debt and what have you. And I just think it's a really interesting topic to actually come across more into a bit of the repo side because everything we do focuses off very much on the SBL markets. I think you nailed it. Yep. It's been underutilized. It's been it's, We never talk about it, yep. but you're absolutely right. We're very much hoping to see more repo traders at PASA in March. We have Adam Smith. Adam, you've been here longer than I have. How has securities finance changed in 15, 16, 17 years that you've been in Asia? Yeah, I came here in 06. I've been at a number of shops. I think a lot of things have changed and a lot of things haven't changed. I think we are still talking to each other on IB. We're still quite manual from that perspective. But at the same time, there's a lot of other sort of innovations coming now just to sort of automate this. I don't know if it's a good thing for us because we kind of like this environment where we all get to hang out, 
we've got to be friends with each other. You know, it's good. We counterparties have to be nice to each other in our industry, don't we? And when I when I bring other people from other areas of banking in, they go, "Oh my God, you guys are all so nice." Are you implying that we have to be nice? Well, no, but it's 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 a really nice industry to work in. The markets in Asia have obviously evolved a lot, but there's still the big ones that we're still waiting to evolve. But in 06, we we're probably talking about China. 2023, we're still talking about China. And speaking of China, let's see if we can grab them for a moment. Myra Uwong from J.P. Morgan. You're on the China Working Group, working with Jason Wells, our chairman. What exactly are you working with Jason on? We are currently planning for the first ever Pasla Onshore SBL conference, or we say the seminar, Shanghai seminar. So it's going to talk about different approaches of SBL onshore and offshore. So it's always great to have this type of platform where people can exchange ideas and share like a high-level overview. So I feel very happy that I can contribute to this especially from a Chinese language perspective. Um, my personal thought is I hope this would just be a first bridge between the, all the industry practitioners that they can know each other and have a thought over what others are doing. Well, it sounds fantastic. Thank you very much, Mark. Okay. Let's see who else we can find. Oh, we have Tim Merch from Macquarie. Tim, we've been talking about unexplored topics for the podcast, including regulatory. So if you had to talk to the regulators face to face, what exactly would you say? You know, I would start with where is the regulator? I think often in this industry, people start with where is the US market? And how does that work? And how do I get Asia, Malaysia, Philippines to look like New York or London? And that's just not a reality based position because the Malaysian regulators, the Malaysian exchange, the Malaysian finance industry just is in a very different place. And so you have to meet them where they are. So I would start with what is the regulator? What is their interest? What are they trying to do? Is it that they're trying to expand you know, their fixed income market? Is it that they are looking at currency controls? Is it that they have a funding gap and just are not ready to talk about any of this stuff? Tim, you were excellent at this. We have to have you on one of our next podcasts as a permanent guest. Would you be happy to do that? I'd love to. While it is a melancholy, happy trails to 2023, without brilliant editing, tireless admin, dedicated sponsorship, amazing guests, not only today, but all of 2023, and of course, the most important variable, you, the listener. This podcast wouldn't exist. So thank you for your time. And of course, happy holidays. We'll see you again in 2024. This podcast is sponsored by Equiland, a global fintech firm for the securities finance industry.